Chapter Four of Hunting Tower by John Buchan. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter Four, Dougal. You'll do nothing of the kind," said Dixon. "You're coming home to your supper. It was to be on the chap of nine. I'm going back to that place. The man was clearly demented and must be humoured. Well, you must wait till the morn's morning. It's very near dark now, and those are two ugly customers wandering about yonder. You better sleep the night on it. Mister Heritage seemed to be persuaded. He suffered himself to be led up the now dusky slopes to the gate where the road from the village ended. He walked listlessly, like a man engaged in painful reflection. Once only he broke the silence. "You heard the singing?" he asked. Dixon was a very poor hand at a lie. "I heard something," he admitted. "You heard a girl's voice singing." It sounded like that," was the admission. "But I'm thinking it might have been a seagull." "You're a fool," said the poet rudely. The return was a melancholy business compared to the bright speed of the outward journey. Dixon's mind was a chaos of feelings, all of them unpleasant. He had run up against something which he violently, blindly detested, and the trouble was that he could not tell why. It was all perfectly absurd. For why on earth should an ugly house, some overgrown trees, and a couple of ill-favoured servants so malignly affect him? Yet this was the fact: he had strayed out of Arcady into a sphere that filled him with revolt and a nameless fear. Never in his experience had he felt like this—this this foolish, childish panic which took all the colour and zest out of life. He tried to laugh at himself, but failed. Heritage, stumbling along by his side, effectually crushed his effort to discover humour in the situation. Some exhalation from that infernal place had driven the poet mad. And then that voice singing, a seagull, he had said, more like a nightingale, he reflected, a bird which in the flesh he had never met. Mrs. Moran had the lamp lit and a fire burning in her cheerful kitchen. The sight of it somewhat restored Dixon's equanimity. And to his surprise, he found that he had an appetite for supper. There was new milk, thick with cream, and most of the dainties which had appeared at tea, supplemented by a noble dish of shimmering potted head. The hostess did not share their meal, being engaged in some duties in the little cubbyhole known as the back kitchen. Heritage drank a glass of milk, but would not touch food. I called this place paradise four hours ago," he said. So it is, but I fancy it is next door to hell. There is something devilish going on inside that park wall, and I mean to get to the bottom of it. Hoots, nonsense," Dixon replied with affected cheerfulness. "Tomorrow you and me will take the road for Ochton Lochton. We needn't trouble ourselves about an ugly old house and a wean impudent lodge keepers. Tomorrow I am going to get inside the place. Don't come unless you like, but it's no use arguing with me. My mind is made up." Heritage cleared a space on the table and spread out a section of a large-scale ordnance map. I must clear my head about the topography, the same as if this were a battleground. Look here, Dogson. The road past the inn that we went by tonight runs north and south. He tore a page from a notebook and proceeded to make a rough sketch. One end we know abuts on the Laver Glen, and the other stops at the South Lodge. Inside the wall which follows the road is a long belt of plantation. Mostly beeches and ash. Then to the west a kind of park, and beyond that the lawns of the house. 
Strips plantation with avenues between follow the north and south sides of the park. On the sea side of the house are the stables, and what looks like a walled garden, and beyond them what seems to be open ground, with an old dovecote marked, and the ruins of Hunting Tower Keep. Beyond that there is more open ground, till you come to the cliffs of the Cape. Have you got that? It looks possible from the contouring to get on to the sea cliffs by following the laver, for all that side is broken up into ravines. But look at the other side, the Garp Glen. It's evidently a deep-cut gully, and at the bottom it opens out into a little harbour. There's deep water there, you observe. Now the house on the south side, the Garpel side, is built fairly close to the edge of the cliffs. Is all that clear in your head? We can't reconnoitre unless we've got a working notion of the lie of the land. Dixon was about to protest that he had no intention of reconnoitring, when a hubbub arose in the back kitchen. Mrs. Moran's voice was heard in shrill protest. "'Ye ill laddie! Eh, ye ill laddie! Mucky hash on my back door with your dirty feet! What ye slinking round here for when I tell ye this morning that I was sending ye no more scones till ye paid for the last lot? Ye're a wean, thieving, hungry gallants, and if there were a policeman in the place I'd gee in charge. What's that ye say? You're no wanting meat? You want to speak to the gentleman that's biding here? Ye ken the old arm, don't you?' I believe it's a muckle lee, but there's the gentleman to answer ye theirselves. Mrs. Morrow, brandishing a dish-clout dramatically, flung open the door, and, with a vigorous push, propelled into the kitchen a singular figure. It was a stunted boy, who, from his face, might have been fifteen years old, but had the stature of a child of twelve. He had a thatch of fiery red hair above a pale, freckled countenance. His nose was snub, his eyes a sulky grey-green, and his wide mouth disclosed large and damaged teeth. But remarkable as was his visage, his clothing was still stranger. On his head was the regulation Boy Scout hat, but it was several sizes too big, and was squashed down upon his immense red ears. He wore a very ancient khaki shirt which had once belonged to a full-grown soldier and the spacious sleeves were rolled up at the shoulders and tied with string, revealing a pair of skinny arms. Round his middle hung what was meant to be a kilt, a kilt of home manufacture which may once have been a tablecloth, for its bold pattern suggested no known clan tartan. He had a massive belt, in which was stuck a broken gully-knife, and round his neck was knotted the remnant of what had been a silk bandana. His legs and feet were bare, blue, scratched, and very dirty, and his toes had the prehensile look common to monkeys and small boys whose summer and winter go bootless. In his hand was a long ash-pole, new-cut from some coppice. The apparition stood glum and lowering on the kitchen floor. As Dixon stared at it, he recalled Meern Street and the band of irregular boy scouts who paraded to the roll of tin cans. Before him stood Dougal, chieftain of the Gorbals diehards. Suddenly he remembered the philanthropic Mackintosh, and his own subscription of ten pounds to the camp fund. It pleased him to find the rascals here, for, in the unpleasant affairs on the verge of which he felt himself, they were a comforting reminder of the peace of home. "'I'm glad to see you, Dougal,' he said pleasantly. "'How are you all getting on?' And then, with a vague reminiscence of the scout's code, "'Have you been minding to perform a good deed every day?' The chieftain's brow darkened. "'Good deeds?' he repeated bitterly. "'I tell you, I'm fair worn out with good deeds. Yon man Mackintosh told me this was going to be a grand holiday. Holiday? 
Govy Dick, it's been like a Saturday night in Main Street of fetchin, fetchin. No collocation of letters could reproduce Dougal's accent, and I will not attempt it. There was a touch of Irish in it, a spice of musical patter, as well as the odd lilt of the Glasgow Necula. He was strong in vowels, but the consonants, especially the letter T, were only aspirations. "'Sit down, and let's hear about things,' said Dixon. The boy turned his head to the still-open back door, where Mrs. Moran could be heard at her labours. He stepped across and shut it. "'I'm no wanting that old wife here,' he said. Then he squatted down on the patchwork rug by the hearth, and warmed his blue-black shins. Looking into the glow of the fire, he observed, "'I seen you two up by the big hoose to-night.' "'The devil you did,' said Heritage, roused to a sudden attention. "'And where were you?' Seven feet from your head up a tree. It's my chief hidey-hole, and gosh, I need one for leans after me with a gun. He got a shot at me two days in.' Dixon exclaimed, and Dougal, with morose pride, showed a rent in his kilt. "'If I'd had on breeks, he'd a got me.' "'Who's lean?' Heritage asked. "'The man with the black coat. The other, the lame one, they called Spittle.' "'How do you know?' "'I've listened to them cracking together.' "'But what for did the man want to shoot at you?' asked the scandalised Dixon. "'What for? Because they're frightened to death or anybody coming near the old hoose. They're a pair of devils, worse nor any red Indian, but for all that they're sweating with fright. "'What for, say you? Because they're hiding a secret.' I knew it as soon as I seen the man Lean's face. I once seen the same kind of scoundrel at the pictures. When he opened his mouth to swear, I kenned he was a foreigner, like the lads down at the Broomilaw. That looked black, but I hadn't got a worst of it. Then he loosed off at me with his gun. "'Were you not feared?' said Dixon. "'Aye, I was feared. But you don't choke off the die diehards with a gun. We held a meeting round the campfire, and we resolved to get to the bottom of the business.' Me being their chief, it was my duty to make what they call a reconnaissance, for that was the dangerous job. So all this day I've been going on my belly about the policies. I found out some queer things. Heritage had risen and was staring down at the small, squatting figure. What have you found out? Quick, tell me at once. His voice was sharp and excited. Bide a wee, said the unwinking Dougal. I'm no going to let ye into this business till I ken that ye'll help. It's a far bigger job than I thought. There's more in it than lean and spittle. There's the big man that keeps the public. Dobson, they call him. He's an American, which looks bad. And there's two, three tinklers camping down in the Garpaldine. They're in it, for Dobson was colloguing with them a morning. When I seen ye, I thought ye were more of the gang, till I minded that one of ye was old McCunn that had the shop in Mearn Street. I seen that ye didn't like the look of lean, and I followed ye here, for I was thinking I needed help. Heritage plucked Dougal by the shoulder and lifted him to his feet. "'For God's sake, boy!' he cried. "'Tell us what you know.' "'Will he help?' "'Of course, you little fool!' "'Then swear,' said the ritualist. From a grimy wallet he extracted a limp little volume which proved to be a damaged copy of a work entitled Sacred Songs and Solos. "'Here, take that in your right hand and put your left hand on my pole and say after me—' I swear no to blub what is told me in secret, and to be swift and sure in obeying orders, so help me God. Sign kiss the bookie. Dixon at first refused to declaring it was all havers, but Heritage's docility persuaded him to follow suit. The two were sworn. Now, said Heritage. Dougal squatted again on the hearth rug and gathered the eyes of his audience. He was enjoying himself. 
This day, he said slowly, I got inside the hoose. Stout fellow, said Heritage, and what did you find there? I got inside that hoose, but it wasn't once or twice I tried. I found a corner where I was out of sight or anybody, unless they had come there seeking me, and I slimmed up a ruined pipe, but all the windows were locked, and I very near broke my neck. Sin I tried the roof, and a sore slim I had, but when I got there there were no skylights. At the end I got in by the coal-hole. That's why you may be thinking I'm not very clean. Heritage's patience was nearly exhausted. I don't want to hear how you got in. What did you find, you little devil? Inside the hoose, said Dougal slowly, and there was a melancholy sense of anticlimax in his voice, as of one who had hoped to speak of gold and jewels and armed men. Inside that hoose there's nothing but two women. Heritage sat down before him with a stern face. Describe them, he commanded. One of them is dead old, as old as the wife here. She didn't look to me very right in the head. And the other? Oh, just a lassie. What was she like? Dougal seemed to be searching for adequate words. She is, he began. Then a popular song gave him inspiration. She's pure as the lily in the dale. In no way discomposed by Heritage's fierce interrogatory air, he continued, She's either foreign or English, for she couldn't understand what I said, and I could make nothing of her clippet tongue. But I could see she had been greeting. She looked feared, yet kind of determined. I speared if I could do anything for her, and when she got my meaning she was terribly anxious to care if I had seen a man, a big man, she said, with a yellow beard. She didn't seem to care his name, or else she wouldn't tell me. The old wife was mortal feared, and was I speaking in a foreign language. I seen at once that what frightened them was Lean and his friends, and I was just starting to spear about them when there came a sound like a man walking along the passage. She was for hiding me in behind a sofa, but I wasn't going to be trapped like that. So I got out by the other door and down the kitchen stairs and into the coal-hole. Gosh, it was a near thing. The boy was on his feet. I must be off to the camp to give out the orders for the morn. I'm going back to that hoose, for it's a fight between the gobbles, diehards, and the scoundrels that are frightening they women. The question is, are you coming with me? Mind, you've sworn. But if you know, I'm going myself, though I'll no deny I'd be glad of company. You, anyway, he added, nodding at Heritage. Maybe old McCunn wouldn't get through the coal-hole. You're an impudent laddie, said the outraged Dixon. It's no likely we're coming with you. Breaking into other folks' houses, it's a job for the police. Please, you, sir, said the chieftain, and looked at Heritage. I'm on, said that gentleman. Well, just you set out the morn as if you were for a walk up the Garp Glen. I'll be on the road, and I'll have orders for ye. Without more ado, Dougal left by way of the back kitchen. There was a brief denunciation from Mrs. Moran. Then the outer door banged, and he was gone. The poet sat still with his head in his hands, while Dixon, acutely uneasy, prowled about the floor. He'd forgotten even to light his pipe. "'You'll not be thinking of heeding that ragamuffin boy,' he ventured. "'I'm certainly going to get into the house to-morrow,' Heritage answered, "'and if you can show me a way, so much the better. He's a spirited youth. Do you read many like him in Glasgow?' "'Plenty,' said Dixon sourly. See here, Mr. Heritage, you can't expect me to be going about burgling houses on the word of a blaggy laddie. I'm a respectable man. I've been. 
"'Besides, I'm here for a holiday, and I've no call to be mixing myself up in strangers' affairs.' "'You haven't. Only, you see, I think there's a friend of mine in that place, and anyhow there are women in trouble. If you like, we'll say good-bye after breakfast, and you can continue as if you had never turned aside to this damned peninsula. But I've got to stay.' Dixon groaned. What had become of his dream of idols, his gentle, bookish romance? Vanished before a reality which smacked horribly of crude melodrama, and possibly of sordid crime. His gorge rose at the picture, but a thought troubled him. Perhaps all romance in its hour of happening was rough and ugly like this, and only shone rosy in the retrospect. Was he being false to his deepest faith? "'Let's have Mrs. Moran in,' he said. "'She's a wise old body, and I'd like to hear her opinion of this business. "'We'll get common sense from her.' "'I don't object,' said Heritage, "'but no amount of common sense will change my mind.' Their hostess forestalled them by returning at that moment to the kitchen. "'We want your advice, mistress,' Dixon told her. And accordingly, like a barrister with a client, she seated herself carefully in the big easy-chair, found and adjusted her spectacles, and waited with hands folded on her lap to hear the business. Dixon narrated their pre-supper doings, and gave a sketch of Dougal's evidence. His exposition was cautious and colourless, and without conviction. He seemed to expect a robust incredulity in his hearer. Mrs. Moran listened with the gravity of one in church. When Dixon finished, she seemed to meditate. "'There's no bloody trick that would surprise me in they new folk.' "'What's that ye call them? Lean and spittle? "'It be home three-pit to me they were furriners, "'and these are no furrin names.' "'What I want to hear from you, Mrs. Modern,' said Dixon impressively, "'is whether you think there's anything in that boy's story.' "'I think it's best likely true. "'He's a terrible imper and callant, but he's no a leer.' "'Then you think that a gang of ruffians have got two lone women "'shut up in that house for their own purposes?' "'I wouldn't have wonder.' "'But it's ridiculous. This is a Christian and law-abiding country. What would the police say?' Eh, "'They never troubled Dalquati Muckle. There's no policeman nearer than Knockrow in Johnny Trammell, and he's as useless as a frosted tatty.' "'The wise-like thing, as I think,' said Dixon, "'would be to turn the procurator fiscal onto the job. It's his business, no ours.' "'Well, I wouldn't say but you're right,' said the lady. "'What would you do if you were us?' Dixon's tone was subtly confidential. "'My friend here wants to get into the house the morn with that red-headed laddie to satisfy himself about the facts. I say no. Let sleeping dogs lie, I say, and if you think the beasts are mad, report to the authorities. What would you do yourself?' "'If I were you,' came the emphatic reply, "'I would take the first train home the morn, and when I got home I would bide there. You're a decent body, but you're no the kind to be travelling the roads.' "'And if you were me?' Heritage asked, with his queer, crooked smile. "'If I was a young and yod like you, I would gang into the hoose, and I wouldn't rest till I riddled out the truth and giled every scoundrel about the place. If you didn't gang, faith, I'll kilt my coats and gang myself. I haven't served the Kennedys for forty years now to have the honour of the hoose at my heart. He spared my advice, sirs, and you've gotten it. Now I'm on clear away your supper.' Dixon asked for a candle, and, as on the previous night, went abruptly to bed. The oracle of prudence to which he had appealed had betrayed him and counselled folly. But was it folly? 
for him assuredly, for Dixon McCunn, late of Meehan Street, Glasgow, wholesale and retail provision merchant, elder in the Guthrie Memorial Kirk, and fifty-five years of age. Aye, that was the rub. He was getting old. The woman had seen it and advised him to go home. Yet the plea was curiously irksome, though it gave him the excuse he needed. If you played at being young, you had to take up the obligations of youth. And he thought derisively of his boyish exhilaration of the past days. Derisively, but also sadly. What had become of that innocent joviality he had dreamed of, that happy morning pilgrimage of spring enlivened by tags from the poets? His goddess had played him false. Romance had put upon him too hard a trial. He lay long awake, torn between common sense and a desire to be loyal to some vague, whimsical standard. Heritage, a yard distant, appeared also to be sleepless, for the bed creaked with his turning. Dixon found himself envying one whose troubles, whatever they might be, were not those of a divided mind. End of chapter 4